At Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Houndsome. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Alternate history narratives, regardless of whether they have overt fantasy or sci-fi elements, are ultimately what-if narratives. This is the same basic principle underlying all speculative fiction, so it's no wonder they make such good bedfellows. And one person who is really, really good at this is Mary Robinette Cowell, and she is here to talk to us about alternate history stories. So, Mary Robinette, if our listeners don't know who you are, would you please introduce yourself and tell them how wonderful you are? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Gladly. Um, So I am a science fiction and fantasy writer. I write short fiction uh, novels. I just won the Hugo, the Nebula and the Locus Award for my novel Calculating Stars. Thank you. I'm very excited. Um, I'm also an audiobook narrator and a professional puppeteer. I think that covers everything. I I love uh, your puppeteering stories on writing excuses. I have to say, <laughs> they they are fun. <laughs> Sometimes they are less fun when they are happening in real life. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, everything's better with hindsight. <laughs> yes, pretty much all the books, uh, at least the ones I know, um, are inspired by history in one way or another. But some don't deviate from major historical events, um, but then like intertwine magic or supernatural. Um, so like uh, the glamorous histories of ghost talkers, while mm-hmm. others kind of use a point of divergence, such as the, the Lady Astronaut series. So do you have a favorite or like why do you choose to do one approach versus another? Uh, some of it really... So I guess it's a, um, that's a good question, and I, I struggle with, with how to answer it because the, the honest answer is that, um, well, you know, when you write fantasy, there has to be magic, and when you're writing science fiction, there's no magic. So <laughs> it's not a terribly interesting answer. Um, partly also, I think, because even in the fantasy, I do think about a divergent point. Um, so... With the glamorous histories, for instance, it's it's just way back. Uh, the fairy and the mortal world never separated the way they did in our world, in, in theory. Um, and so, like, there's a lot of historical things that you can read and think, oh, I bet that person was actually a fairy. Uh, like William of Orange, when he came over to uh, to England and... There was there's someone that they refer to as being this very diminutive person that that he had relations with, and reading it, it's it's the the way the person is described. Um, it's really easy to imagine that this person, uh, who was a person of great power, might have been, you know, an elf or a fairy or something. Um, in reality, it was probably someone who was just not very tall and somewhat petite. But it, these are the kinds of, of points that I look at sometimes. Um, and with ghost talkers, uh, the the difference, the divergent point between ghost talkers and our world is just that the spiritualism works as advertised. 
in in their world. So it rises to to interest and popularity at the same time in their world as our ours, but because it it works, um, it continues and develops in ways that it doesn't in our world. So I, I do think about this because um, I don't think it's possible to insert magic into something into a society without shifting it. And then when I do put it in, I'm very careful about how I handle it to keep it from shifting society too much. Whereas the interesting thing with the uh, calculating stars is the divergent point is so large and and happens right at the beginning of the book. It, it, actually, that's not quite true. The divergent point for the calculating stars universe happens before the books, which is when we wind up with a different president. But um, but the big one that everyone notices that the thing that really starts to shift everything is the meteor hitting. And so I don't have to be as careful with how much I shift history with the calculating stars as I do with my fantasy novels. It's interesting what you were saying about like finding little pieces in history that you could kind of apply. So, you know, the William of Orange and this person who you could kind of see as someone who is Faye. Do you go and look for these kinds of things or like are they something that you read about and, and sort of sparks the idea for the story? Like what, what way around does that work? Um, well, with Goose Talkers, the, uh, the idea came first um, and then I, I went backwards from there looking for logical places. With well, Actually, I guess that's actually true with both of them because with, um, with Glamour's histories, I very much wanted – uh, my Jane Austen was with magic and was thinking about what a what a Jane Austen novel would look like in a world where magic worked because she, she would never have written a fantasy novel she you know she she mocked the gothic novels of the day so I in order to have a a Jane Austen fantasy novel I had to put her in a world where magic works and so so there I, I kind of looked backwards and a lot of what I would do is I would look at existing folklore and look to see if there was some basis in reality that, uh, that stories had been built on. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't remember a lot of the details right now. I should have looked this up before talking to you. Um, but the wild hunt, there is some speculation that it is actually based on a set of, um, of nobility that would do this kind of, of hunt and that people were terrified of and that they had different attributes. Um, and it, and the names of the nobility are completely gone from my brain. I do remember there is a, an idea going around that it was Sir Walter Raleigh. Uh, and also I think Sir Walter Drake maybe was meant to be leading the wild hunt. Uh, I know that he was strongly associated with it at one point when I've read up on folklore within the British Isles. Yeah, that that may well be. It is. It it has been. It has been quite some time since I looked at it, and and honestly, because I I never, I never wrote it. It was just me thinking things through for my own benefit, uh, like just making some notes to myself. So it never stuck in my head the way um, the way research that actually winds up on the pages. I tend to think that unless I actually put it into the book, it's not really canon. It's just potential canon. I like the idea of potential canon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The diminutive person whose name I'm completely forgetting is like a 
a queen or a princess or she's she's someone who marries in and i'm like ah that's the point that's the point where we uh, you know where where the human race winds up picking up fairy blood and can can work glamour um but i don't remember i, I don't remember her name at all right now i'd really like to ask you about the um you know the strengths and weaknesses of kind of choosing a secondary world setting over a historical world setting because i mean personally i've i've literally just moved i've done this myself i've moved from writing secondary world epic fantasy to writing a historical fantasy piece and it's been a really really interesting experience um so what can you do in a historical setting that you can't do in a secondary world setting or vice versa well, you certainly have a lot more freedom in a secondary world to play fast and loose with the way history went down. Uh, one of the other major advantages of secondary world is that you do not have people emailing you to let you know all the things that you got wrong, uh, which I get. <gasps> oh, great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Looking forward and, to that. <laughs> oh, they're, they're great fun. Great fun. Uh, and often they are writing to let you know that you got something wrong, which in fact you didn't, but is just taught wrong in schools um it's uh, it's one of the great joys in my life uh so so that's one thing um the other thing that i think that a secondary world allows you to do uh that is different from a an alternate history is uh to mix and match things from different eras and and that can can be a lot of fun on the other hand what alternate history does um because you're dealing with stuff that the reader often knows, you can shorthand a little bit more with an alternate history than you can with the secondary world. Like, I don't have to talk about what automobiles look like, because everyone knows what the automobiles look like. Whereas when I'm doing secondary world, I have to do a little bit more emphasis on that that kind of thing if I want them to um, in, in order to tie it to to uh, the visual database in a reader's brain. But with alternate history, don't have to worry about that. And then thematically, because we are we are descendants of whatever historical era that I'm talking about, when I when I play with those what if things, it's much easier for people to draw kind of um, lines of causality between the real history and where we are and the alternate history and where we could be. And since I'm often dealing with um, particularly with uh, calculating stars where I'm, I'm dealing with gender and race and, and mental health issues, looking at, at the things that were happening to real people in the 1950s and 60s and recognizing that we could have taken a different path had we chosen to, uh, but that we didn't means that a lot of the inequalities that are still present in our world uh, are kind of it draws a line under them a little bit harder than it would have if I were just doing a secondary world. So do you think that that is potentially a strength of alternate history over writing, say, in a, like a straight historical novel? Because you can use sort of elements of speculative fiction to help highlight whatever issues you're trying to talk about with, with your story. I do think that is a potential. I, I, I mean, I think that it's something that any author can do if they want to, but it is one of the great advantages of science fiction and fantasy is that we are writing 
with with metaphor just baked into the bones of our our art form. Uh, one of the things that I talk about with puppetry all the time is that we're the theater of the possible, and um, and that it is it is very much the metaphor made manifest. It is you know if you want to talk about death, you can have a puppet actually die on stage, whereas an actor they can't actually die on stage. I mean, you don't want them to. They can, but you don't want them to. So the audience will will have a, a deeper investment. They'll they'll react to it in different ways, and and the other thing that again both puppetry and science fiction do, I think, and fantasy, is that it takes the building blocks of the normal world and just shifts them to the side enough that you can see backstage and see the connective tissue, which makes you understand how things in our world interconnect better than than you would with something that that is straight up mimetic fiction so i i think that it is it is an advantage um i i also think that a, a skilled author could could do that with historical fantasy they just have to work harder <laughs> fair enough i mean the the fact that the sort of the metaphor as you were saying was baked in with science fiction and fantasy i mean that's why i fell in love with genre fiction because i really enjoyed that it used the genre to actually address social issues in a, in a more interesting way, in a way that maybe got people to think about things from a different angle. Yeah, and I think one of the things that it does with that is that that it provides a little bit of a distance, uh, which which gives us a safety to think about stuff because because it's not exactly like the real world. Uh, it, we can back off just a little bit, and I also find personally as a reader, but also watching my own readers uh, react or, or watching readers react to other work that if you give someone space to draw a connection themselves, they're going to be much more kind of in, in tune is the wrong, is the wrong word, but they're, they're going to have a stronger emotional connection to that idea that you're, you're trying to, bring to life than if you just tell them this is how it is and and a lot of times when you do mimetic fiction it is unavoidably this is how it is because you're presenting something that is supposed to be true to life and and i think that sometimes that can make readers feel preached to um or resistant to a new idea whereas with science fiction and fantasy we we give them that little bit of a safety net it's like no, this isn't this isn't real life. But what do you think from the ideas that we're we're raising? You know, it's it's what you talked about at the beginning. It's the it's the what if. How plausible does the what if have to be? I mean, when you're bringing in magic or or sci-fi, I mean, do you keep the plausibility in line with okay, well, this is going to have this knock-on effect and keep it that way, or like what? How much is too much to be like completely out there and still remain historical in a sense? People are willing to accept dragons and mermaids. Uh, I just. Are you saying <laughs> dragons aren't real? The idea of plausible is very mutable. One of the things. Um, Margaret Dunlop, who's been on Writing Excuses, talks about, uh, she's a television writer, and that, that in television, you generally get one buy, which means that you can ask the reader to buy in on one thing. And uh, and then you can, you can kind of go as wild as you want from that, as long as everything has 
uh, logical lines of causality. And this is actually something that they'll do with architects too, which is really interesting. But one of the, uh, the kind of things that they'll do in architectural school, not all architectural schools, but a number of my friends have talked about this, um, that, that you are given an assignment based on something that is completely impossible or random or just weird. Like we need you to design this building and it all has to be built around this wheel of Winsley Dell cheese. You're like, okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or this building must contain nothing but shades of purple or this building can have no right angles anywhere. And they'll give them just like one, one weird, weird thing. And then they have to, you know, build this building out of green beans. Um, and they have to then think about how to actually execute that. And, and so, and I, I think that's the same thing with fiction that you're allowed one really big buy. And as long as everything sort of extends naturally out of that, you can get away with a lot. When you start asking people for two or three or four things, that's where you start to get readers going, hang on, wait, wait, wait. Like when I saw Little Mermaid, the the film, the fact that there's a talking crab and there's a girl with a fish part, like this did not bother me at all because all of it was around the central idea that there is a magical undersea kingdom. Like, totally fine. I will buy anything you tell me lives in the magical undersea kingdom. The storm that blows up out of nowhere that they don't see coming, I'm like, you can see to the horizon. You can see a storm coming before it gets to you. Oh, come on. This don't is ruin yeah. Little Mermaid for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is, this is not, this is not how this works. Um, I agree. I was, I always had a problem with the ending. <laughs> I just thought it was completely unbelievable. Yeah. So, so I'm just like, one thing, totally fine with. Another thing, no. On the other hand, like Brandon Sanderson's um, Stormlight series, the giant storms that are raging around the planet and the seasons that change depending on, like, you know, you call it spring because it's it's beginning to warm up, even though, you know, they're, they're uneven things. It, it all stems around this weird weather system. I'm like, fine, fine, totally, uh, whatever. I'm 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 okay. I understand what's going on. Yeah, so you set up the rules and you have to follow those rules. Yeah. Mm. There's a, an internal rationale. Yeah. That's really interesting about talking about following the rules because I'm thinking back to what you said earlier about having fairies in the real world and kind of slotting themselves into history, which is a really wonderful idea because history is is fascinating to the right people, but it's very mundane and you have fairies coming into it and it makes it a little bit more glamorous and a little bit more like how you wish the past had been and it been all, all magical and you know sort of green and pleasant land and everything yeah. uh, which makes me wonder about the fact that many alternative history narratives are concerned with resolving or even completely undoing certain events like terrible wars in the past and things like that do you think this kind of wish fulfillment is is actually helpful can it actually teach us anything about our past or is it just a, a really good story it can. Um, I think that it can if if what you're talking about is a, a point where a different decision would have actually changed things. Um, and, and looking at, I don't like being prescriptive, but I, I think that one thing that they can do 
is um, is kind of provide a, a an architectural blueprint for different choices that we can make in the present, uh, because history does tend to repeat itself, right? So if we look at um, say we look at the Luddites and the way the Luddites actually happened, uh, in, in as opposed to the way they're taught in school, um, which is or the the common law you know, common knowledge version of the Luddites, which is that what the Luddites were protesting was the rise of weaving machinery that was taking weaving, which had been a highly skilled, multi-generational job to something that was unskilled out of the home and, uh, and really dangerous. So what they were protesting as much as anything was uh, a loss of way of life and, uh, and the ramifications that had. So if I if I take that and I think, okay, well, what if that happens in a different way? What if the weaving machines come in and and people do things differently with regard to the weavers that actually existed? What that does then is provide a blueprint for someone today who's looking at something like uh, they're they're working on uh, robots currently. Uh, they're working on robots to hands to, to stitch garments right now every garment that you own is hand stitched um there's there's no way to do sewing automated everything that you have on has been sewn by a person if we get you know this robotic uh these robotic things that can come in and sew things automatically that's huge swaths of the population that no longer have work now granted saying that the conditions under which most people are, are sewing things uh, are really genuinely terrible. But it is also worth noting that, that there is this huge shift that we are about to see. And, you know, we, we've seen it when robots came into car uh, manufacturers that all of these people who are doing these highly skilled jobs no longer had work. And, and so that's a place where if you, if you looked at an alternate history and you modeled it differently and said, well, what are, what are the other ways that we could have done that? Then, then it offers um, kind of a thought experiment that people can apply to the present day. Clearly, research is very important uh, when you're writing historical fiction. And as we were mentioning earlier, very often, if the details aren't correct, then you're definitely going to get someone writing into you to point out exactly what you got wrong. Is this the same with alternate histories? Um, how, when you obviously, if you meet a point of divergence, you know, and then obviously your, your story is going off in a different way, how much of the original history do you need to take with you? It varies a lot. Because some some changes are going to shift history faster and farther than others. With uh, and and also it depends on on how far you get away from that divergent point. So in calculating stars, you know the divergent point, the the big one, is March third, nineteen fifty two, when the asteroid strikes Washington D.C. Up to that point, all of the changes that I was doing needed to be fairly small, um, because I wasn't shifting history that much. Uh, it, you know, it's like, it's a different president. It's, it's just a few months after we have the different president. There's not a lot of changes. I have to make sure I'm pretty accurate. When we get into the, the 19, you know, after the asteroid hits, I get to shift things really hard 
But I also still have to think about the reasons that history happened, because history does not happen in a vacuum, right? So one of the decisions that I made was that as a result of the meteor, that desegregation in the United States, in the American South, uh, happened sooner than it did in our world, because the pressure for refugees uh, to to move into new school systems, the, the depopulation of much of the East Coast, uh, all of those things were going to shift the dynamics. The fact that you would have lost a lot of the um, black elite in Washington uh, means that you would have different people rising to prominence at different times. So Martin Luther King Jr. doesn't come into prominence in the real world until, um, I think, two or four years later than I have him rising to prominence in my world. Uh, and, and I thought about that because, uh, you know, I, I looked at who was basically who was still alive after the meteor hit and what the uh, which of the social issues were still going to be present and who would be pushing for them. And so I decided that that he was going to um, to do the March on Washington sooner, and not the March on Washington, the March on Kansas City in this case, but that he would have done it sooner because of these additional pressures, um, because the, the landscape would have shifted in different ways. Do you then feel that you need to really flag that that is a conscious choice to make that earlier, like so that people don't then go, uh, excuse me, that happened, you know, however many years later? I have news articles at the beginning of uh, each of my chapters, and so I put that information into the news article and talked about why he was doing it. Um, I didn't talk about the the death of the um, the people in D.C. because I figured I had talked about that a great deal and that people could connect the dots. Um, but I did, in fact, just get an email earlier this week from someone who was like, uh, excuse me, actually, and wanted the history to be the same and like he can't do a march on washington washington doesn't exist like that's things things would have happened differently um and also i get to make these choices because i am the author of this universe <laughs> so so it, it i think it varies you know the I'm, I'm thinking about the way fashion would shift i think about the way uh the economy would shift um, I try to make sure that that it's all again these these logical causal chains, but I'm also really only shifting the things that the story touches. I do not think about how things happen in the parts of the world that I don't go to. I, I, I like in kind of general broad strokes. Like I know that that things did not go well for the Soviet Union because when a meteor hits and you have three years of winter. You know, you are already right on the edge of survival, which it was at that point. Um, it was economically strapped and and already very cold. I, I know that it didn't fare well. I have no idea how that actually happened. Like, I have not sat down to think about exactly what day it collapsed. I haven't thought about all of the infighting. I haven't thought about, I haven't actually thought about uh, the ways, you know, what countries it broke into when it collapsed. I just know that it did because knowing that it did affects the parts of the story and the world that I'm touching. It would be an incredible amount of extra work that 
you know, it's, it's obviously important to think about, but doesn't necessarily make it into the book in a direct way. It just influences the way that you have to tell the story. Right. Um, and and some people really enjoy that and, you know, will dig into it. And I, I think that that's great. I don't think that there's anything wrong with thinking about everything unless it keeps you from writing the novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hashtag world Bible. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I had an argument with Brandon Sanderson on a panel once about world Bibles. <laughs> he loves yeah. Yeah, he loves he loves the World Bible. So I had a question from the audience member who said, Oh, you know, I'm I'm writing a fantasy novel, but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm creating my world and I haven't written any of the fantasy novel yet. But I I I've made a world bible and and how much world building do I have to do before I write the the fantasy novel? And my answer was like just write the damn novel and Brandon's answer was, Oh, you know, well, you have to create all of these things first. <laughs> Totally yeah. different approaches. Very different approaches. And he doesn't even, he doesn't always create all the things first. But it's also where his happy place is. Oh, yes. Well, I was going to actually just slightly relating to this about World Bibles. How much research do you do at the beginning of the book? Do you feel like you need to have amassed a certain kind of bank of research before you can begin or is it an, a more organic process where you you start writing you, you use your research and then you hit a wall you think crap I've got to I need to just improve my knowledge of this before I can move forward with the story it's a mixed bag and, and it's actually a kind of somewhere in the middle of those two versions mm-hmm. uh what I do so the first thing I will say is that I have learned that the smart thing to do if you want to do historical stuff is to write about a period that you're already interested in because you have a general understanding of it. So, um, so I, I tend to write in eras that I'm already interested in. And then I do, even with those, I will do kind of uh, what I call broad research where I just read a little bit about what's going on in the period. And honestly, I will often use a Wikipedia article, you know, it's like 1963, what's happening in 1963. And and just read about that or Battle of the Somme, you know, World War One, because I had to decide, you know, I knew I wanted to do the book in World War One with Ghost Talkers, but where in World War One? It went on for a while. So I do this broad research, which then helps me narrow down uh, kind of what and where I want to to be with the story. Then I do a synopsis. Then from the synopsis, I use that to fuel my research uh, and, and have that be more specific research. And then and then once I have an outline, I will start writing. Uh, and I do go from outline from synopsis to outline. Uh, the outline is more specific, like these are the actual story beats. Um, this is where I think I'm going to have chapter breaks, even though I know that I will shift them later. But roughly, this is what I think the shape of the story is going to be. And then I start writing, but I'm also reading in parallel to to the writing. So all of the the leisure reading I'm doing at this point is usually nonfiction. You know, when I'm writing a non uh, uh, an alternate history, uh, so I'm reading nonfiction related to the stuff that I'm writing about, and adjust and revise based on stuff that I pick up. But most of the time, once you know the the shape of the story, 
once you get into it, the things that you need to know wind up being very specific and not plot sensitive things. So what I'll do is I'll just do a bracket, uh, a square bracket and, and do kind of a, a placeholder, you know, and then Jane put on her bracket, fancy dress bracket. I'm like, I, I know that she's wearing a very nice dress right now, but if I stop and research what the dresses looked like in 1816 in France, I will stop writing because I will just get trapped in pictures of very pretty dresses. So I just put yeah. the placeholder and then I do spot research later. If it's something, um, and this was the case with calculating stars, where there's just a ton of stuff that, of science that I'm not going to be able to pick up in any kind of timely fashion. Um, it's like, in order to have Elma talk about orbital mechanics, she needs to do for two lines of dialogue and it's not plot specific lines of dialogue. It's just for her to demonstrate competence porn. You know, I, I have to actually understand orbital mechanics in order to write those two lines. Or what I do is I say, and then Elma said, bracket, competence porn regarding orbital mechanics, bracket. And then I move on. I'm not kidding. And then I move on and then I send it to a scientist who actually knows this stuff. And then we have a conversation about what kind of thing she can be talking about. And then I put that into the book. Um, there is literally, I just finished writing book three and there is literally a line that says, but still sometimes you had to job the job. <laughs> Cause I don't know what the job is. <laughs> Can I ask, what is confidence porn? Competence porn. Oh, competence porn, sorry. Uh, it is where the reader gets excited about watching a character be competent about something. Um, heist, heist films or novels, it's not important for you to actually see the character practicing the gymnastic flip that they have to do in order to get into the tiny little space, but it's fun. God, this is a thing. I completely. When you said a heist thing, it is really exciting watching like a really good thief at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get it? Yeah, yeah. No competence porn. So I use it. So yeah, I use it um, at different points in the stories. Uh, frequently, I will do some competence porn at the front of the story to establish that my character knows their stuff so that later I can hand wave past all of the stuff I don't know how they do and readers will just buy that they totally know how to do it. I like it. It's crafty. Yeah. That, I didn't realize it had a term before, so. <laughs> yeah, I think that comes from Leverage, the uh, the television show. I hate to lower the tone, but it briefly made me think of the Team America song, um, What We Need Is A Montage. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, a montage is competence porn. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. After that brief diversion into world Bibles, I just wanted to go back to what you were mentioned earlier about touching on some points of history, but not others within the same sort of time frame. And it made me think of um, a recent experience I had where I dipped my toe into um, alternative history writing. And I wrote a story for Hell's Empire, which was an anthology that hypothesized an invasion by demonic forces in Victorian England. 
And the guidelines that were posted uh, said that the story should not involve the devil himself or Queen Victoria. And this was because they already had anchor stories from particular authors who dealt with this. Um, and I thought this was fine because I didn't really want to write about either of them. But it, it did get me to thinking about the fact that writing about history invariably involves writing about real people and their effect on that timeline. So when it comes to real people, where do you draw the line between fact and fiction and research? And do you think you are bolted down to a particular personality if, you know, if, if there is a particular take on a particular character within history, do you have to stick with that? Or do you think there's some leeway to expand on it or make them slightly different? Or will the readers just go, that that doesn't sound at all plausible? I think everybody, uh, <laughs> everything that I say is like, everybody approaches this a different way and everything is fine. Um, <laughs> but but I do, I do think that this is the joy of fiction, is that there's a lot of different ways you can play that. The way I choose to play it is that I try not to use uh, historical characters as um, named action-oriented characters in my novels. And and the reason is because they were real people and they often have living family members still. And and I feel like that's I feel like that's gotta be annoying, right? So when I do put historical fiction characters in, I try to make sure that as many things that come out of their mouth as possible are things that they actually said in the real world, or that they are, that I'm not having them espouse any beliefs that they didn't say publicly. What that often means is that I will, um, I'll create composite characters that I will use instead. So for instance, in, um, Without a summer, uh, I needed um, I needed an earl. For, there was an earl from Ireland that I very much wanted to use, but he was a real person, and we but we didn't actually know that much about him. Like there's stuff that we knew, but not enough for me to actually feel like his character was exposed, and and certainly not enough for me to feel like I I was comfortable having him express anything political. Like, and I needed him to do that. So I made a composite character that was based on this person, but wasn't actually this person. On the other hand, when I did Valor and Vanity, um, I've got Lord Byron, and I just use Lord Byron in that. And there's a couple of reasons that I was significantly more comfortable doing that with Lord Byron. One is that he journaled extensively. So it's actually very easy to understand what Lord Byron thought about specific things. And I wasn't having him do anything that was out of character. And the other thing is that Lord Byron himself made kind of fictional character of himself, which again made me feel like it gave me some leeway that because he, he created this larger than life persona, because he had a larger than life persona in his own era, it didn't feel as disrespectful as if, I mean, Lord Byron was pretty disrespectful on his own. Um, so it didn't, it didn't feel, it didn't feel as squicky. In, in the calculating stars, um, one of the things that I have been doing is putting in nods to, uh, to real astronauts of the era, um, men and women the women who went through the mercury testing, but I try to just use one of their names. So like there's a character uh, that I refer to as Grissom, who's, who's clearly 
Gus Grissom, but I, I never call him Gus so that there is that, that little bit of, of narrative distance. And this is, this is a matter of my own personal taste. Having said that, like I totally dig reading uh, alternate history when someone else has put a character in and, and I enjoy doing that. But then afterwards, I always feel like I need to go and read about that character to find out what lies I have just been told. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm signing up for them, so it's not <laughs> like I'm mad about it, but, but because I know that media and stories like will, will teach us things and it will imprint and like, what did I just imprint on that, that may not be true. I love that idea that you go away and, and sort of read up and find out what the lies are. It's a good one. I, I'll have to do that. Cause I love reading Philippa Gregory. Um, oh yeah. One of the things I like about her is, um, you know, you, it's so well written, you can't really tell which is fact and which is fiction. But you said earlier that one of the things you don't like doing with real people is putting in putting words into their their mouths in case living relatives are are around to get upset, quite rightly. And it has occurred to me when I've written stories as well. But then does that mean if they're old enough um, and far enough back in history that there probably aren't that many living relatives around you'd have a bit more free reign so I mean if we went back to kind of the age of Boudicca would you be all right with that as I said everybody I think gets to do what they want to do I mean the farther back you go sure yeah in theory I'm more okay with it but in practice I don't know because I haven't actually done that it does seem to be that alternative history does appear to be more focused on sort of modern day or certainly the, the stuff that I've read and I've seen but I don't know whether that's just because there's so much history between perhaps now and Roman times that a change in Roman times might not filter through to our current day I suppose might not be as different yeah and you know and I think one of the other things is like with you know when you when you do go back so far you know Roman or Byzantine that what we know is coming from fiction. It's rarely, it's not not completely, but it's coming from stories that people told. When when someone has already been turned into a myth um, or a legend, I feel like it's it's a lot easier to to justify playing with that life uh, as a you know a, as a, a narrative toolbox. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the King Arthur is a wonderful example of this. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like there was there was probably a guy um who was nothing like this. And so it's it it feels more a fair game. But again, like this is my own this is very much not a prescription. This is just my own personal taste and how I tend to approach things. As mm-hmm. I said, you know, I totally was just like, all right, Lord Byron, you and I are going to have a fun romp in Venice. On the other hand, I did like, I picked him because he was in Venice. Like everything that, everything that I have him doing that is kind of visibly public was stuff that he did. Like he swam the Grand Canal in his evening clothes, swam the Grand Canal naked. He just, he was, he was quite a, quite a fellow. (laughs) (laughs) I love Byron's stories. Have you read, talking about romantics, this is a massive, don't even worry about recording this, it's just a massive tangent. Did uh, Tim Powers' book, uh, I think it's Anubis Gates? I haven't, I should. Oh, well, it's like the romantics in and time travel. Oh, fun, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, because I studied like 
one of my major units at university was romantic poets and I did like Keats, Shelley and Byron and, and, and Coleridge and Wordsworth and like Coleridge is in this book. And it was like mind blowingly cool to have okay. actually go and hang out with the romantic poets. So, so you've brought up time travel and Byron. Byron. So did you know that I put a Doctor Who cameo into all of my novels? No. <gasps> no. But this is a brilliant thing to wow. talk about. Yes. So I do. Um, and Lord Byron in particular is one of my favorite cameos, the cameo in Valor and Vanity. Because in the real world, Lord Byron had a traveling companion, Dr. Polidori, who was uh, who was at that famous weekend with Shelley. He wrote what has is widely regarded as the first vampire novel. Mm-hmm. But in Byron's writings, he frequently reco- uh, refers to Dr. Polidori just as the doctor. There's a two-week period in which Byron, who otherwise, like, records pretty much every day, either in letters or in journals. There's a two-week period in which he is unaccounted for. I think it's pretty clear what happened. So in Valor and Vanity, Byron is there with his friend, the doctor, and uh, who's an odd young man with a fez. And I got uh, my friend, Paul Cornell, who has actually written for Doctor Who, like real actual episodes, to uh, Matt Smith, that scene. So I sent it over to him, and he rewrote the dialogue for me to make the Doctor more Matt Smithy, and then sent him sent it back. I had to tone it down a little bit, um, but uh, that is that is perhaps my favorite of my Doctor Who cameos. the The secret, by the way, to spotting them is um, if there's a character that I refer to as the Doctor and never give them a name. That is the doctor. Uh, that is so cool. That's yeah, amazing. Cool. The only one that I gave a name was the one in the very first book, uh, in, in my very first novel, uh, Shades of Milk and Honey, and Dr. Smith. I mean, come on. Oh, very good. Dr. John Smith. I mean, yeah. in my head, he's John Pertwee, but, you know, that's me. <laughs> I love the idea of Paul Cornell kind of matt smithing up a, a scene i really like that i think that, that should be you know one of the consultancy things that he does <laughs> yes yes i think so too i'm i'm about to send over the um the the new book to him to see if if he will uh if he will peter davis in a scene up for me <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast about women in sci-fi fantasy and horror so i think we should talk about gender and particularly yes. because the Lady Astronaut series is quite literally talking about just that, putting women into these roles where we kind of been, have been kept out of. And, and also, I mean, I really, really loved Ghost Talkers and I felt like people weren't talking about that book enough because I, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. But for me, it was really nice to see women having an active role in the kind of the, the strategic elements of the the war as well as being you know the nurses and and helping in that that manner so you have you know i don't know if we should call it a habit but i'm gonna do it uh (laughs) you have a habit of using these alternate histories as a way to examine gender roles and i mean did we've talked a little bit about how you can use you know a strength of using 
alternate histories is a way to examine those gender roles. Do you think that this kind of examination of these gender roles wouldn't have worked without this kind of historical setting? It is certainly much, much easier with the historical setting, I'll tell you that. Because what what keeps happening is that people will read the book and go, oh, things were so terrible then. And then they'll look up and around and go, oh, wait, oh, wait, this stuff is still happening. And and I think that I, I know um, that when I say I think that I've seen this happen, I know that when you talk about stuff and um, just talk about these are the, the gender things that are happening in my real life, that what you're told is, oh, no, you're just imagining things. Um, oh, it's not really that bad. Or, you know, boys will be boys. Uh, that they they brush it off as if it's not a real thing or or they'll they'll complain about the soapbox that you're on. I talked to this guy who was upset about Captain Marvel because he's like, oh, you know, it's it was really heavy handed. And I watched it. I'm like, no, no, it wasn't. Actually, that was that was pretty gentle. Uh, she didn't actually have to deal with that much gender stuff. And he's like, oh, you know, there she is oppressed by the patriarchy and her best friend's a woman and she's oppressed by the patriarchy. I'm like, yes. Yes, actually, that's that's how that works. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, I <laughs> the other thing I would say is that I don't actually go into these thinking, I'm going to talk about gender. What I do is I don't ignore it. <laughs> and we thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too many of them do ignore it. And that's I know. really sad. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's not how that works. Because, I mean, one thing we've kind of talked about a lot on this show is how you get a lot of these secondary world fantasies or really kind of out there sci-fi where the authors are just kind of reimagining the patriarchal society kind of gender relations that we see today. Yeah. And we sort of sit there and go, well, why are we finding it so difficult to imagine something where that doesn't happen or where women can have more positions of power? Why are we always imagining these, you know, uh, in a fantasy secondary world, we can make that be absolutely anything we want and yet we're constantly regurgitating. But with yours, you are sort of looking at that and actually coming up with ways in which women could potentially have more power? I mean, do you think that, I mean, going back to like the plausibility and whether or not it's it's necessary, but do you think it makes it easier for people to swallow? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> Here's the thing. When I was writing Calculating Stars and I was putting in women that had existed in the real world into the novel, uh, women of color, women in, uh, you know, in engineering. What my beta readers would say was, oh, you know, I really love the way this alternate history allows you to do that. Or I don't believe that this woman would be allowed to be there in the 1950s. And they were all based on real people. After the film Hidden Figures came out, all of those objections went away. And it's because of what you said about we regurgitate and we believe and we internalize the media that we see. And the only thing that anyone had been seeing was space as being 
all white guys all the time. Now, they were definitely, it was prioritized around all white guys all the time, but they were not the only people there. Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the 1940s had a policy that they did not Actually, it was it lasted longer than the 40s, but they had a policy that they did not hire men for the computing department. The people who did the math, they didn't hire men. Uh, they thought women had a better work ethic. And they had a question, and, and this was the 1940s, they had a question in their interview process um, where they would ask people how they felt about working with black people. And if the person hesitated or said that they were not comfortable, they were not hired. So, you know, these are things that happened in the real world. And... And because of what we've consumed, we assume that that's not the case. So these women like that I've got in these positions of power, these are women that actually existed that had those positions. And we're still having to fight that same goddamn fight over and over and over again. So my alternate history, like that's one of the things that I'm not actually shifting. Um, it looks like I am because I'm making you aware of it, but I'm not actually shifting it that far. Am I giving them more opportunities? Yes. But not that much. And there's still the ceiling. The ceiling is still there. Like, you know, I'm not letting them like, I, I cause this is how it would play out. Like they'd be like, yes, Yes, women women should go into space. They should do these things. Uh, Werner von Braun, in the real world, had this plan for this massive space station that he wanted, and there would be hundreds of people on it, men and women working. Women would all be receptionists and secretaries and computers doing math. Dr. Lovelace, who gets a ton of credit for the uh, the first lady astronaut trainees program, where he got women in to train them in order to see whether or not they could pass the astronaut tests, because he was thinking about sending women into space, and he gets so much credit for that, and I'm super glad he did it. But the reason he did it was because he's like, if we're going to have a long-term presence in space, we're going to need secretaries and receptionists. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. And it's like, and and today, you know, it's so hard I just saw a, a woman talking about, you know, it, it went around on, on Twitter as, as things do where she, she has a PhD. She's an engineer at, at JPL jet propulsion laboratory, and she's doing the tender thing. And this guy is like, Whoa, you, Oh no, she's actually at NASA. He's like, the guy is like, Whoa, you work at NASA. That's so cool. And she's like, yeah, I love my job. And he's like, so what are you a receptionist? No. Yeah, oh. and that's 21st century, you know? Like, this stuff uh. doesn't... The, the, the degrees change by tiny increments. I have to say, though, as someone who has been um, secretary in her uh, temping, temping days, they actually do run the departments quite a lot. Oh, God, I mean, yes. I, I appreciate that that's not the first place you should go when someone says I work at NASA, but... I no, no. there's if we're talking about alternative history, I reckon there's definitely an alternative history where the secretaries pretty much run everything. Well, I mean, the secretaries do run everything. It's the alternate histories where they get credit for running everything. Yes, yes. yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear. Like when I uh, when I am upset about the uh, you know secretaries and receptionists, it's because that's the only box they're allowed to be in. You know, when when people are thinking about it, not because there's anything wrong with secretaries and receptionists or. or computers oh there's a sorry total tangent but back to the time travel thing uh really good book uh that i narrated 
called The Far Time Incident, in which um, the main character is the admin assistant for a university time travel department, and they go back to Pompeii. And things keep going wrong, and she's like, oh, do you need a stapler? I have one in my bag. (laughs) She's just the most prepared, competent person in the entire group. That is absolutely amazing. I love it. I, I adore those books. Sorry, totally had to tangent and plug plug another author. Um, that totally works because we were actually going to ask you um about your favorite alternate narrative books. So that fit in. You just fit in perfectly there. Beautiful. <laughs> yes. Um, Do you have any others some... to recommend? Or yes, uh, one of mine. It's not fantasy, but I love it so much. Um. Sorry, I'm just, let me look up the actual author's name of The Far Time Incident. It's The Far Time Incident by Neva Maslakovic, and they're, they're a lot of fun. But the other thing that I'm reading in answer to your actual question, uh, or not reading, but uh, my other favorite alternate history um, are the Jane Austen Diaries. Have you read these? These are amazing. They are not even remotely science fiction and fantasy, but... Uh, they're so good. I had to stop reading them when I was writing the glamorous histories because they were so good. It 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 confused me about what was real. Um, the premise is that so in in real world, after Jane died, her sister Cassandra burned a lot of her letters and then cut stuff out, and there were journals and and all of this stuff is just gone. Um, so the premise uh, is that the that some of her diaries have been found um in in a barn and so they're presented as these are her actual diaries uh, and we've annotated them for you um and stephanie baron the author does a brilliant job with the annotations because they feel like they are actual editorial annotations but what it turns out is that in these gaps in history where we don't know what was happening with Jane Austen, she was solving murder mysteries and international crime. And they are so good. And you'll be reading a scene and there'll be a footnote and it'll say something like, you can see where she took inspiration from this thing that happened in her life for a scene that later happened in Pride and Prejudice. And you're reading, you're like, yes, yes, I completely, no, wait, wait, no, that's opposite. That's the opposite of how that, okay. They're really super good. I love that you a good alternate history can almost supplant true history in, yes. in your mind while you're reading. Yeah, yeah. It was um they are very good and she nails the voice. She's so good with the voice. I don't read a lot of alternative history books, but I do like history books that deal with, say, the Tudor times or further back than that. So I really like Bernard Cornwall's The Winter King trilogy because, as we were saying earlier, King Arthur is just perfect for this kind of thing. And you can insert so many historical details. You can leave out as many historical details as you want. And he manages to work some magic in there. But at the same time, you're never quite sure if it's real magic or if it's illusion or whatever. Um, So I think that will probably be my recommendation for people who want kind of light alternative history. All right. I would have to give a shout out to A Man Lies Dreaming by Lavi Tida, which is kind of, if you get like books within a book, it's an alternate history within a book. No <laughs> fun. So it's kind of like, uh, so there's someone waiting to, it's a bit depressing, he's waiting to die in a concentration camp and 
before he came to be in a concentration camp, the character was uh, an author. And in it, he imagines a world where after the war, um, he imagines this alternate version of events. And it's kind of like a pulpy, noir, murder mystery thing, which is an imagined alternate history within an imagined book. <laughs> so, But it's really interesting. It's very twisty and really different. Um, and I highly recommend it. Sounds great. I would probably go for uh, the Temeraire <laughs> series. I've oh, only yeah. Read, I've only read three of them. But if you like Napoleonic Wars with dragons, then <laughs> I think that's like such an easy kind of um, elevator pitch for these books. You know, it's like you like dragons, you like the Napoleonic era, then you're probably going to like these books. Um, but yeah, I thought that was. I think the best the best part of those books is the relationship between uh, Lawrence and uh, who's the main character and and Temeraire, who is also arguably the main character, but they just have the cutest relationship. It's like you know, Lawrence starts off as like, oh, I'm not going to be you know looking after a dragon, and only the lowly people do that, and you know what, I'm meant for greater things, and then and then Temeraire comes along and he has a rough, and there's lots of description of how he grows into his rough. <laughs> Just like this is amazing. I yeah. love those books so much. Going back to Mary Robinette's comment about the Jane Austen diaries, it's not quite alternative history, but it is alternative Austen in that uh, The Guns of the Dawn by Adrian Tchaikovsky of what happened if uh, females were allowed to join the war as soldiers. I thought oh. that was a really nice take. And again, because it's Austen, it's sort of historically based, I suppose. But at the same time, it was a, a lovely mix of um, fancy and what ifs and some good historical fact in there. So well done, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking to us. It's been really great. Thank you for having me on. It's been a delight talking to you. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.